Well, I get to launch a new series today, and uh, I want to tell you, um, I did some traveling this week. I worked in Southern California and in Texas, and uh, I came home, and I was with great people and great leaders, but I told Ann, I said, I am so glad to be here. I'm so glad to be a part of this evergreen community and congregation. What we just got to celebrate, folks, you know, we're just this little deal here, but, but it's an extraordinary deal. It, it, it is a wonderful deal. And, uh, and I'd love to celebrate with you. Well, I want to start with a question. Uh, we're getting into the political season. There's going to be some polling, so I'm going to get you used to being polled here. So uh, all of you are in one camp or the other, and it has to do with whether or not you've moved recently. So hands up for those of you like us, Ann and I, that have moved within the last two years. Hands up, big and bold and brave. I empathize with you. I really do. If you're in a significant relationship, I hope that it was successful on the other side of that. Anne and I did the most difficult thing of all yesterday. We assorted our books to eliminate some. Oh. Just a word to the wise. If you have a significant relationship you want to sustain, don't throw away books. Just get more bookshelves. Yeah. <laughs> Other group of you, how many of you have not moved within the last two years? God bless you. Don't. Don't, if you possibly can. Yeah. Well, we recently moved. We have a new address. We quickly memorized our street address. Are you ready for this? Firefly Lane. We live in Disneyland. Yeah, we memorized the number 7086 Southeast Firefly Lane. But, but we have just begun to learn our neighborhood. That's going to take a long time. Ann and I have had a lot of addresses. Uh, we've lived in 14 different homes. We've rented, we've owned uh, condos and apartments and small houses and big houses. We've house set. We've uh, been in uh, 45 states and 34 countries. We backpack. We've had a lot of crazy addresses over time. But I want to talk with you today about where you live. As I launch this series of four talks that I think are going to be very interesting and probably challenging for all of us, a series about seeing others through the eyes of Jesus. We're calling the series The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor. We've drawn that title from the book that inspired this series by that title written by uh, Mr. Uh, Mark uh, Laberton. And I want to re-quote from uh, Mark when he talks about learning our address taking a lifetime, he says, I've learned that my address is both more particular and more universal than I had realized. Point of view affects everything. Jesus said it clearly this way. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be filled with darkness. I'm going to ask you to do a simple exercise. It's not creepy. I won't, I won't hypnotize you, trust me. Just all of you close your eyes for a moment and become aware of the difference between light and dark and what the interior feels like now with your eyes closed. Now open your eyes big and wide. What's your experience with the contracts of light and darkness and clarity? Jesus says to us, we all have, we all have faulty eyesight. 
And the degree of our faulty eyesight is going to be the degree with which our interior is darkened and less apparent. And today is a talk that leads us toward that clear sightedness and light that Jesus wants for us. But before we move toward how we do that with him, I want to take a couple of minutes to talk about the context that all of us share in the human experience and why it is that all of us need to have some eyesight help. Why is it that we don't see others clearly all the time? Well, we've learned some wonderful things from a scientific study. One of those those is that we didn't start out that way. Babies aren't born with prejudices. Now, the word prejudice is a compound word, pre-judgment. A prejudice is a decision about a group of people, and now we make prejudgments about an individual that we associate with that group. Uh, Babies come with lots of messy and smelly and noisy stuff, but they do not come with prejudice. But bias, which leads us toward group prejudice, comes very early in life. In fact, in fact, prejudice develops in all of us. Prejudice is that negative assumption about an individual because we associate that person with being a part of a group that we've made a judgment about. The assumption is based upon their membership in the group. Now, we come by this honestly. Life does this to us. My own uh, upbringing in a small Oregon community is that uh, the elementary school that I went to was 100% rural, blue-collar, white kids. When I went to junior high, there was one Latina in our school. When we went to high school after a couple of years, her brother joined her, making two people of color in our high school of 800 people. That affected my scope and reach and view. In my home, I was influenced very positively in many places, many parts. My mother had uh, about 100 international pen pals that she regularly corresponded with. Some of those visited, particularly from India and Japan. That made a very rich international experience in our farm home, a positive influence. But I was also taught by my parents that God did not approve of biracial marriage and that that should influence friendships and potential dating relationships. Negative influence. We all develop our deals. We learn, first of all, that we we discover, we learn that everyone who fits into a certain group, well, those people are all the same. Prejudice paints every individual that has particular characteristics or beliefs with a very broad brush that fails to look at each of them as unique. Some of the better known types of prejudice include, well, racism, sexism, classism, homophobia, nationalism, ableism, lookism, xenophobia, and the one that really is increasingly bothersome to me, ageism. <laughs> you anticipated that. Yeah. <laughs> when I was 16 years old, forgive my parents for this, but they, they let me go all by myself to Manhattan and spend a week in New York City. And while I was there, I met and had conversation with the first African-American male that I had ever spoken to in my life. The first guy that struck a conversation up with me in Times Square was recruiting me to take drugs for him to Philadelphia. (laughs) 
And I decided it was probably time for me to leave Times Square. So I headed back eight long Manhattan blocks to the YMCA where I had a cheap room. And while I was on my way, two other guys started following me. And toward the end of the time, they chased me. Now, in retrospect, I think I looked like the country bumpkin tourist that I was, and they were probably just messing with me. But I'm also a product of the media in the 70s where actors of color were often directed to act in a way that reinforced cheap stereotypes about their racial or their ethnic people group. We came by this stuff honestly, but we all came by it. The fourth thing that we discover is that prejudice and stereotypes emerge as part of normal human thinking. In fact, God wired our brains this way. When we see a, period, a series of repeating patterns, we develop habits around those. We prejudge those. That helps us function in life. We get sort information into mental categories. And once formed, these categories are a basis for prejudgment. So we depend upon our ability to place people and ideas and objects in these different categories that makes the world simpler and easy for us to process and respond to. In fact, we interact and react more quickly because of those, but we can also act with great mistakes because of those. The fifth thing that we've discovered, which is very helpful to me, is that the amygdala responds to any out-group category. The amygdala structure in your brain, part of the limbic system that fires first before you have conscious thought. It's the emotional system. And when we have a response there, it triggers hormones and neurotransmitters, and it causes us to have an emotional experience that then hopefully our rational thought can catch up with. But what research has shown is that the brain's emotional response to your out-of-group faces of others is not strictly just bound to characteristics such as race. For example, your amygdala responds to any outgroup category depending upon what you deem is important. For example, Nicholas and I are duck fans, and we have an amygdala response when we meet you and you tell us that you're a cougar or a, or a husky or a whatever, don't we? Yeah. Now, because we are large and magnanimous people, Nicholas and I, we don't overly judge you for that. We just have to get over our own immediate knee-jerk reaction of what's wrong with this person that I'm just meeting. <laughs> yeah. If it's out-group, your brain has learned to trigger something there. In fact, it might be your sports team. It might be your gender. This is what men should do or shouldn't do or the roles to have. Or women, this is maybe it's where you go to school or where they go to school. It might be your political views. As we move toward this fall, we're going to see more and more red mega hats. If I were wearing a red Make America Great hat this morning, I would have triggered some amygdalas out here. And it would have been all across the spectrum of emotional experience is how we are wired to respond. No wonder the Apostle Paul writes to us and says, if you want to experience God's good and perfect will, you are going to have to be renewed and transformed by the renewing of your mind. There's some work to be done for all of us. And so we ask the question today, who do you see when you look at others from your address. What we all share in common is that we all start out with a me 
orientation. Ann and I watched the first uh, segment of a new uh, Netflix series called Babies, and just some really intriguing uh, neuro research about how babies' brains are formed in the first few months and how different parenting styles, even of attentive parents, end up really affecting what goes on uh, in the kid's brain. But me refers to my earliest and most persistent way of seeing. And when we are born, me, the world is as big as that small circle. It is us. But within a matter of minutes, or at most a few hours, we become aware of we. We look out at the world with the lenses of our instincts and our social grooming. The word we defines our sight lines of what we, in our limited view, see about the world. We see and have our we shaped by experience, categories, personality, gender, language, race, culture, all combines to form the why and the how of what we see. And when we, uh, when we experience body language that uh, sets off alarms in us, that triggers neurologically, whether we're in a safe zone or maybe an unsafe zone, that emotion that's within us looks for some kind of rational justification. And so we begin to pick up some other triggers. It might be their eye movements or skin color or type of dress or volume of voice or personal distance in space or attitude. And all of those teach us whether or not we should feel fundamentally safe or whether or not we should fundamentally unsafe. We mark a zone of safety around those that comprise we. So when we feel threatened, and there is that instinctive warning system that triggers within us, we begin to try to identify what details could justify that and make them something other and maybe less safe. And so we see them in terms of general appearance or clothing or accent or physical proximity or facial expression or eyes or cleanliness or speech and all of those reinforce our judgment that we are seeing not we, but we are seeing them. Now, somewhere in our life, I hope your experience was similar to mine. Very early in life, we begin to have some kind of a relationship with God. And God breaks into the picture, and we begin to have a relationship. It's my own belief that we are all created in God's likeness and image, that we share God's DNA, and that we are God's children desperately loved and valuable, unique and distinct as part of his creation, but all of us sharing him as Father God together. That's my belief. I believe that we are all at our best when we relate to God first. And so in my world, there was this structure then of me and we and then God. Maybe, maybe this model looks something like what your experience was. I had a sense of personal identity, and then there was the we of family and friends and church community and neighbors and classmates, and, and then there was a relationship with God, me, we, and God. Now, there's a fourth circle of relationship that's extremely important for all of us, but I was essentially blinded to it, and it's the circle that we call they. They make someone different. 
They is a word that pushes away. It draws a boundary. It makes a parameter, it, a distinction, a separation, a distance. And so we may choose to avoid some cross-cultural experiences because of the discomfort that we have when we encounter the other. Because when we place them in a box that's labeled they, then we can place them where we think they should go. And our world is safe and comfortable. But I discovered that there might be a different model for that. What makes someone they? Well, they is a word that is figuratively like sticking out your tongue. It's a word of expulsion. It's a word that creates disassociation or disconnection. They're like this. They talk like that. They believe this. They feel that. They are different because... And my question for all of us, myself included today, because we're all here, what kind of situations expose your sense of distance, fear, rejection, anger, prejudice, dislike that makes our they? I had a they moment this week. I actually had several they moments this week, but it's not my job to uh, primarily confess my sins to you, so I'm going to confess one of the smaller ones. Yeah. So I'm scrolling through Facebook, and, and uh, I come across a, a page, and it's, it's just a strident, blatant uh, political point of view and inviting me to join a, another page. And I look to see the source, and it's someone who apparently is my friend that I have never heard of. And I thought, I don't have to put up with you. And so I had my they moment, and I blocked them. That's what I did with they. I put them in their place. You see, when I blocked her, they silently shouted out, I don't want you. I figuratively stuck my tongue out and created media distance. They is what I said. So what experiences in your life have contributed to your definition of they. What we learn is that Jesus was very clear about what's on the inside of us always pops up on the outside. I want you to think about this story then about the inside acting out on the outside. In fact, we have a, a heart scan that is constantly being read by people that watch us do life. Jesus said it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. I think it's out of the abundance of the heart that most of our actions and behaviors and communications come as well. And so we will understand that to be conformed to the image of Jesus requires then an inner transformation that has equal outward transformation and behavior. In fact, I'm about to recite a story that's familiar probably to most of you today. But the bottom line of the story, I've stated with this next phrase in your outline, and it's this is what Jesus teaches, is that to act justly in public is to share and participate in the heart of God. You remember the story. There was a, a bright, learned guy. He was he was an attorney in the law of religion. 
And he came to Jesus to test Jesus to see if Jesus was as smart as he was. And the test was, Rabbi, um, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And good question, Jesus said. Good question. And then Jesus turned the question back to him. You're an expert in these matters. How do you read the law? And the man replied, I think if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love others as yourself, that that's how you experience eternal life. And Jesus said, bingo. Well, not exactly that. He said, he said well done. Go do this and you'll live. Now, this is where you know the story takes a very interesting turn. The man wanting to justify himself said, who is my neighbor? Now, what he's doing here is he has said, my world is constructed around me, we, and God. And I'm planning to love my neighbor as myself, and I'm planning to love God, but I certainly don't want to waste my time loving they. So tell me what the line between we and they is, because I want to love my neighbor, but I don't want to love them. And so Jesus tells a story. He says there's a guy who was traveling from Jericho, or from Jerusalem down to Jericho. He got robbed. The guys beat him up, threw him bloody and half naked in the ditch. And a religious uh, professional came by, passed on the other side of the road, went to town. There was a guy who was born into a religious family and environment culturally. Uh, he also passed by, went on. And then the third guy, we call him the good Samaritan. So he was uh, from a biracial uh, uh, context, uh, a religious mess, uh, synchronistic, took a little from here and there and put them together. Uh, socially was not someone who was, was very high on the, the ladder. And it was the Samaritan who cared for the guy. And as you read the story, you'll notice that there are 11 verbs associated with the Samaritan's activity. He loved the man by acting. And at the end, Jesus has absolutely not defined who's we and who's they. But he said with a question back to the religious scholar, who was a neighbor to the man who was robbed? And the man says, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. When I grew up, there were very clear lines between who was in and who was out. I suppose God has some pretty clear lines about that too. I think he's serious about our need to come in faith with, to Jesus and to accept forgiveness for our sin and the new life of the Spirit. I think our decision to be a Christ follower or not is absolutely critic, critical for our eternal destiny. But I want you to notice that when Jesus was pressed on the issue of who is my neighbor, he refused to give criteria to allow us to identify the we from the they. And for us, he put the onus back on us to say, who are you going to be neighborly toward? I find that powerful. So inside of our circles then, if our address has moved from primarily me-centric to Jesus-centric, 
which is what Christians do. And we're given a new address. It's called In Christ. So yes, Jared and Ann live on Southeast Firefly Lane. Thank you. But our eternal identity and address is Jared and Ann live in Christ. And now in Christ, I have the potential of having better eyesight so that what's inside of me can be flooded with light. And I, in turn, can see with the eyes of Jesus and how he views others. And what I'm going to discover that when I am in Christ, I have the privilege and the obligation to love God with all I've got and to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus refuses to tell me who isn't my neighbor. Powerfully profound. As you read through the Gospels, and I'm focusing on those this year, so my head is especially in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and, and the words of Jesus. You've probably noticed what I have. That it's, it's the lame, the poor, the blind, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners, the outsiders, and the foreigners that tended to be most responsive to be Christ followers. And in the Gospels, it's those that are on the inside and the top, the Roman conspirators, the chief priests and their, uh, the, the, the Roman occupiers are the chief priests and their conspirators who crucified him. I think that's interesting. And just a little two-minute uh, survey of 2,000 years of church history, I might leave out a detail or two. But you know that in the year 313, when Christianity became the formal legal religion of the Roman Empire, that those regular people like most of us who were not able to read and didn't have access to Scripture had to rely on people who were well-educated, who could read and were literate, that very small handful of people. And from that time on, the Bible ended up being primarily interpreted through the eyes of the powerful, the politically connected and the religiously powerful clerics. But the Bible, especially the Gospels, are written from the point of view of the common people, the powerless ones, the people who are needing to have mercy and justice. And I want to suggest that I think in part of this better eyesight that it may be for some of us a shifting of our perspective and our priorities to make room for the powerless instead of accommodating the powerful, which I think across almost 2,000 years of church history since the, the 313, that religion has been often married to power and to money, and that the only way good religion gets divorced is to have the point of view of those who may not have power or money. I want to give you a very current example. Uh, there, there's a very popular uh, Christian philosophy right now, and some of you have come across it, and you know, we rarely talk about you know, things that we're not for. We'd rather talk about our, what things we're against, we're not for, but I think this illustrates what I'm trying to describe here within our culture in a very 2020 uh, experience. There's a, there's a Christian philosophy that's gaining traction that says that if Christians will make it their duty to infiltrate major areas of social power, and they identify seven, and then to engage those and turn those toward creating a Christendom-like 
kingdom, which is usually often naturalistic, then Jesus will return. That's their eschatology. That's their view of how Jesus will come back. So we're going to invade power centers. We're going to become powerful. And the association of power and money is going to be the environment with which Jesus returns. Now, I've not done that. It's called uh, uh, dominion uh, Christianity. I've not done it justice, but I have not misrepresented it. not done it justice because I didn't explain it further. But I just want you to think about that idea relative to these words of Jesus. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. So, like many of you, and maybe more than some of you, I care deeply about my political and my social thoughts and opinions and views. I also try to keep in mind words like those of Jesus when I shape those and promote them. Well, here at Evergreen, we always come back to the same place, right? Wherever we started from, and some of you were wondering, where is he coming from and where is he going today? We're going to get there right now because you know where we come back to, right? We always come back to Jesus. It just all hinges on Jesus in Christ. It's the address that we share in common. So Jesus invites us to change our address. His favorite invitation was, come, follow me. His call to the apostles was, come be with me. And John records in Jesus some of his final words before the cross. Jesus said, abide in me. Dwell in me. Make your address in me. Because I believe that when we are in Christ and seeing others as Jesus does, that we're able to bring what we and the world really needs the most. We don't practice justice. We don't love because it's some institutional thing or it's some political bent or some ideology. No, it's because we've entered into the heart of God who is loving and who is just. Jesus said it so clearly. The first and greatest command is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Or as he said to the smart guy in the story, go and do likewise. What can you do? Well, I got a running start on you guys. I asked myself the question, what should I do? And the answer quickly came to mind. I went back to Facebook, unblocked her, I'm going to subject myself to the next several months of lots of invitation to join other pages that I probably won't join. But this is the point. I am committed to doing what I can to have beliefs and convictions and preferences to disagree with others without rejecting them. I'm going to learn to do love. 
toward them. So how about you this week? What kind of change might be helpful for you? Well, given what we've just read, I suppose that your next step probably has to do with your heart, soul, mind, or strength, don't you think? (laughs) And maybe it's a heart change today. Maybe this is your day to get right with God and to have an address change of being in Christ. It's really so profound, but God has made it so easy. It will change your life in dramatic ways, but the process is not hard. You come and you say, God, you have a claim on my life, and you have forgiveness of my sin given in the gift of your son, Jesus. I come to you to follow you, and I take a step towards you by receiving your forgiveness and by receiving the life of your spirit to enable me to be a follower of you. I make my address in Christ. Heart change today? And for those of you that are considering that or making that decision today, uh, ushers will have some little packets. We call them fresh packets, and they might be on the kiosk in the back or out in Info Central as well. But take one of those. It'll be a letter from Ann and me and some information to help you get a start. Maybe for you today, it will be a healing in your soul, deep down where there's values that life has taught you, some of which are popping out now in attitudes and behaviors that serve you very well, but some that are popping out in expressions that are not serving you or others well. Maybe for some of you today, your amygdala gets fired and triggered by some stuff and you followed that emotional path and you've discovered that that doesn't always lead you in a path of love and help. And so you're going to follow the Apostle Paul's advice today and you're going to be transformed by the renewal of that part of your mind by God's grace. And maybe for some of you, you've got it all together on the inside and you just need to change your schedule this week serving others and loving them with all of your strength. I think I mentioned that the Good Samaritan has 11 verbs associated with his behavior in that story. Who is it that you can reach out and love in practical action ways this week? Well, as I started today, I think I promised that this might be interesting and a bit challenging. I hope it was interesting for you. My guess is that it was challenging for most of us. And my further last comment is this. If you didn't like today, come back next week because somebody else will talk. (laughs) Would you stand with me? Thank you for being a community that has the courage to do life with people who are different from you and learn together how to love. And in this little test tube environment called Evergreen. We're reinforcing our abilities and developing our skills to love some of the M, them that's out there as well. God, would you help us as you transform our hearts, our soul, our minds, and give us strength and courage to love in Jesus' name. Amen.